What is going on, Ridgecrest family? Man, it is good to be able to do church with you today. It doesn't matter if you're, man, wearing your Sunday best or you're still in your pajamas. We want to worship with you today. Man, we want you to participate in worship. We want you to sing your loudest. We want you to join us in prayer. And we want to study God's word with you. So welcome to church today. Remember, if you're tuning in live or you're catching us at a different time and a different day, we want to say welcome. Man, we want to let you know that this service is being rebroadcasted on the local Juice channel on Tuesdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. We also want to let you know that, man, we want to keep you up to date on all things that's happening throughout the week. And we are dropping a link to our bulletin in the comments. So please find that link so you can stay in the know with things that are happening this week, such as there's a women's Zoom Bible study that takes place on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. And there's a men's Bible study that takes place on Thursdays at 8 p.m. as well. We also want to let you know that today is the last day for you to be able to cast your vote online. If you're a Ridgecrest member, then you've received an email and even a, a, a letter in the mail talking about this online vote. So take advantage of that. And today we have two special Zoom gatherings that are taking place. Man, we have one for the Ridge kids that's taking place at 4 p.m. And that's for grades three through sixth grade. Man, it's a time for them to get together and be social even at a distance. And at 5 p.m., we also have uh, something for the Ridge student girls, that, and that includes seventh grade through 12th grade. And so please uh, check out our Facebook pages for more information about that. And then we have a little save the date for everybody. Our women's ministry is hosting an online conference the weekend of May first and second and so please put that on your calendar plan to join with us that's going to be a special time that our women are getting together and they're going to do an online bible study through right now media so if you haven't taken uh, full advantage of that free subscription go ahead and sign up today so you'll be ready to roll that weekend but right now i want to ask everybody to join us in praying for three things man let's pray for our church Let's pray for the churches in our community. And then also let's pray for everybody that's affected by this COVID-19. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to meet with one another in worship. God, I get that we can't meet together in person, but that does not mean that we still can't meet. And so, God, we thank you for the technology that bridges the gap from us to wherever everybody else is. And God, we pray for our church service today. God, we pray that we would be uplifting. God, we pray that we would be encouraging. But God, we pray that everything we do brings honor and glory to your son. God, we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts today. And God, whatever we hear, God, we would take note of the truth. And God, we would be willing to walk that out throughout this week. God, we pray for our pastor. God, we pray that your spirit would move among us today. And God, we don't just pray that for Ridgecrest, but God, we pray that for all the churches in our community. God, man, we pray that we would light up social media with, with your truth. 
God, all throughout the week, God, we pray for churches that they would stay connected with their members, God, that they would not only meet those needs, but also be looking to meet the needs of our community. And God, we pray for anybody and everybody that's been affected by this COVID-19. God, I pray that you would help us parent well. God, that you would help us be great neighbors. God, that you would help us take advantage of this extra time that maybe you've given us. And God, I know personally, God, please help me spend more time in prayer, more time in the word, and less time on social media. God, I pray this for myself, for my family, and for our entire church family. God, thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray to you because we know that you're faithful to listen and answer our prayers. And we ask all this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. 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 Hey, will you at your house, would you either stand up and sit or sit down wherever you are in your bedroom or living room or bathroom or kitchen? We want you to sing with us this morning and you can sing as loud as you want to. You can even nudge that person next to you if they're not singing loud enough. I, I probably can't hear you over at 6801 Wesley, but I want you, your neighbors to wonder what's going on in that house. Why are they singing so loud? So join us in song this morning.
Hey, as we do every week, we are going to ask that someone at your house pray for these three things that are showing up on your screen right now. Pray for that as your family, as you all prepare to hear the message. Hey, good morning, church family. It's so good to be able to greet you again in this way, uh, to be able to come into your living rooms, to be able to open God's Word and to share with you. I hope you have found refreshing this week. I hope the gospel has been at work in you each day, giving you purpose, man, giving you joy, giving you a heart for your neighbors, and showing you God's heart for you. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been going through Colossians chapter 1 together. And so you remember that last week we looked at and really began to ask this question of, is Jesus really all that great? Man, how great is Jesus? And in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20, answered that question for us over and over and over again with the decided understanding that he has surpassed all understandings of greatness, that he is far superior to any form or fashion of our estimation that Jesus is greater than any other ability, that Jesus is greater even than our understanding. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we walked away from it with this terrific understanding that God in the fullness of time sent His Son, Jesus, the greatest, to die for our sins. And we have peace with God through Jesus. But it leaves us in some sense asking, I mean, if this, is, if this is how great Jesus is, like where are we in this cosmic unfolding mystery? Where are we? Where are you and, and where am I? Where's my wife? Where are my kids? Where is my neighbor? Where are we? Where are those who are found in Jesus? If he is so great, are we really necessarily all that bad? Or maybe we're just misunderstood. This morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. As we examine what we were, what we are, and what we will be. Would you follow along with me? Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. The Apostle Paul writes and says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray for us and pray for God's word to do its effective work this morning. Father, I am thankful that your word is sure. I am thankful that your word is steady. God, this morning we stand assured knowing that your son's work has been accomplished on that cross. 
And so God, we aren't building assurance on doing good things. We're not building assurance on being good people. We are building assurance. We are resting in reliance upon the finished work of Jesus. So God, I pray for my heart this morning that as I open this word that you'd remind me of who I used to be. God, that you would assure me of who I am now. And you would give me a hopeful preaching of where I am headed. And God, the convictions that you have borne in my heart through the study of this word, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would be affecting in the hearts of men and women and children in all the various hearings of this message. In Christ, we have hope. We have redemption. We have reconciliation. We are at peace with God. God, we submit these things to you. We love you. We're thankful for you and the ways you are sustaining us even now in this time. God, help us in all things to rest in the truth of your word, in the sufficiency of your son. And we submit these things to you in his name. Amen. Amen. I mean, there's this understanding I go through sometimes uh, where I'm reminded that when Valerie and I first started dating, I was a terrible boyfriend. And if you really ever want the full story of this and just, just how vile and terrible I was because my kids are watching and this isn't an appropriate venue for that, I mean, just ask her to say, look, he's talked about this several times. Was he really that bad? And what she'll tell you is it's a miracle of God we're married. It's a miracle of God we're married because he was such an abysmally uh, terrible, awful, very good, very bad, no good boyfriend. I was just the absolute worst at it. If I had a daughter and a, and a guy came up to me and said, I'd like to date your daughter, and I found out that he was anything like the me I used to be when I dated Valerie, I'd say, no, go away, move to another country, never talk to my daughter again, never, ever, ever. And if you're a dad, and, and, and anyway, so any number of things, I was bad at it. But sometimes in my remembrance of these things, I ask the question and think, was I really that bad? Because I, like, I had some good moments, right? I did some, I did some good things. I was uh, building on a base, albeit slowly. And there are a number of different ideas kind of in your life and in my life, movies we've, wa- we've watched, shows we've watched. Uh, think of My Fair Lady, right? So you have this professor of phonetics who takes this lowly cockney woman uh, living kind of bedraggled life in London and he wants to turn her into a member or to appear to pass as a member of the aristocracy. But, but even in her, we recognize she's incredibly bright. That On the basis of what he's able to build on, she has phenomenal building blocks that he's able to establish and, and, and build this phenomenal thing on, right? And so I think there's this understanding in terms of kind of who we were that we whitewash our failures, that we say, God really had some good raw material in me. He had something but, you know, verifiable, he had something good to start with. And so when we encounter verses like verse 21, we think, whoo, well, certainly this is referring to somebody who had problems I didn't have. Certainly this is referring to people who had issues that I didn't struggle with. But no, we recognize that the totality of this covers all of humanity. And all of humanity, he says these words, and you. And you who, verse 20, have received peace by the blood of Christ's cross, and you who are increasing in the knowledge of God, back to verse 9, and, and, and that God is calling us to walk in faithfulness, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. This is who we were. 
We struggle with the reality of this. We struggle with the proclamation of this, and we want to lessen its severity. We want to lessen its impact. But this is who he says we were. This is who he says we were. This is what he says we were doing. Now, this idea of of alienation Paul uses over in the book of Ephesians. If you flip over to Ephesians 4, in verse 18... He says they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. I mean, this is the grace and mercy of our God, right? The one that Paul is praying to in verse 9 of chapter 1, the one in whom we are walking in faithfulness to in verse 10 and following. And, and this is what he has done. It's not that God found good people headed to be great people and looked down and said, you know what, he, he's got some great raw material. I think I could do something with him. I think my blood's, the blood of my son could be sufficient for him. But God found all of humanity wayward and disobedient. And on those people, on those people, on the wayward people, on the alienated people, on the people who looked at God and said, I'm completely disinterested in you, on the people who looked at God and said, I don't need you, I'm self-sufficient, on the people who looked at God and said, I disbelieve on the people who looked at God and said, no, thank you. On all the various people who looked at God and gave any number of different reasons, and he describes them as being alienated. We were strangers from God. We were estranged. We lived in the midst of a fractured relationship with God on the basis of humanity's sin and on the basis of our own personal sin. This is the reality so while we might want to whitewash our past actions, the reality of who we were and all of our imperfections and all of our failures leads us to estrangement, alienation with God. And that's who he came for. And that's who he reached out to. He says we were living alienated. We were hostile in mind in doing evil deeds. Elsewhere, you'll see this word hostile rendered enemies. We were enemies of God. The Bible tells us that if you are a friend of God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that that is met out in following his will. And so what we see is just as believing God and, and, and walking out your faith is the fruit of what it is to be a Christian, so too disbelieving God and walking out your disbelief is the fruit of a non-believer. And this is what we all were. None of us were born Christian. Now, some of us might have been born in backgrounds and with families surrounded by the influence of Christianity, but none of us were born Christian. Over the last couple of weeks, some of our members and people across the world have been recording these testimonies. Jesus changed my life. Now, what's the underlying implication there? That their life, when they encounter Jesus and the grace and mercy of his cross, were fundamentally altered. That if they had not encountered Jesus, that if they had not submitted themselves to Jesus, their lives would have remained very much the same. Now listen, some of us discount this because, because we say, listen, I, I know good and wonderful people. I have a good and wonderful wife, I have good and wonderful children, and certainly God would not judge them harshly solely on their refusal to believe and submit to them. But what we read in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we understand in the Bible is that certainly all of our right standing, that all of our righteousness before God is only ever due us. Why? Because of the blood of his cross, verse 20. 
that none of us come into close fellowship with God, that none of us receive uh, salvation in the name of Christ on the basis of, of us being good, but on the basis of Jesus doing the one good and righteous thing that we could never hope to accomplish on our own. Amen? And so we move from being an enemy to being a friend. We move from being this idea of being hostile in mind and doing evil things, but, but still we're kind of preoccupied with this idea. And we're kind of looking at these things, but we have this decided understanding that what he says here is we are alienated. What he says here is that we are hostile in mind. And what he says here is we are doing evil deeds. Now, some of us rested on the sufficiency of our goodness. And some of us rested on the sufficiency of our parents or our grandparents. I can't tell you the number of people I've visited with that in conversations about spirituality, they talk about the faith of their parents, they talk about the faith of their grandparents, but they don't talk about their failure to uphold God's law. They don't talk about their need for redemption. They don't talk about their need for reconciliation. They don't talk about their need for a savior. They put it on something external. And all of these externals meet the wrath of God. The only thing that allows us to receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God is the blood of Jesus. So this is who we were. And this is who we were. And it's so incredibly important that we recognize our backstory, that we cop to our backstory, that I'm able to tell you, man, I was a terrible, wretched, very bad, no good boyfriend. And that, and that I've been changed, hopefully, you know, still headed this direction. I guess the jury's still out on that, but, but hopefully still headed in that direction. But, but what we see in salvation is this isn't who we are anymore. Some of us, we don't struggle with this understanding. We live in the reality of it every day. And so some of us, when we wake up in the morning, we still, we still have this sense of feeling of being estranged. The enemy walks into your bedroom and he wakes you up in the morning and he reminds you of your past failures. He reminds you of your infidelities. He reminds you of your untruths. He reminds you of your wayward heart. He reminds you of your apathy. And then he calls you to walk in the reality of those now. He says, listen, this isn't just who you once were. This is who you are now. And really you're just living a facade around everybody around you. He says, he didn't really redeem you. You were unredeemable. He didn't really move you from being an enemy to a friend because you have stayed in active animosity towards God. You, friend, are beyond the pale of redemption. And we meet those various accusations with the truthfulness of God's word. And we recognize that this enemy longs to keep us in our past. He longs to keep us looking in the rear view. That he doesn't want us to find hope in the gospel. That he doesn't want us to find redemption in Jesus. That he wants to keep us focused on our failures instead of the fulfillment, instead of the blessing, instead of the mercy, instead of the grace given to us, won for us by Jesus. Amen? God comes in and he radically reconciles our wayward heart. He takes those who were dead according to Ephesians 2, and he makes them alive. He takes those who are living in darkness, and he moves them to light. He takes those who are alien and estranged and enemies, and he welcomes them home. He reconciles us. We know who we were. Verse 22 tells us who we are. He goes on, he says, he has now reconciled us in the body of his flesh, by his death. He has reconciled us by his body of flesh, and his death. Jesus 
actually died. He actually died for us on our behalf. Romans 5, Romans 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 and verse 6 said it this way. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray, right? We were all alienated. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on Jesus, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has reconciled us to himself. And there's good news in here. God did not leave you as you were. He did not leave you under the condemnation of your sin. He did not leave you where you were, but he delivered you. He reconciled you. And he did this, he accomplished this through Christ's death in his flesh, by his death. Man, this is good news to celebrate, amen? This is good news to live in the reality of that God didn't leave us where we were, but he's brought us and made us new. He has accomplished reconciliation between us and God through his death. Now, why? Why has God done this? Why has he kind of forensically done this? Why has he accomplished this? Look at what he says in here. It is unbelievable. He says he has done this. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, Leviticus chapters 21 and 22 talk a lot about the idea of kind of going through the sacrificial system. On the one hand, it talks about the priest. And it says the priest has to do all these various things. They've got to make sure that that they're clean. They've got to make sure that they're ceremonially clean. They've got certain things that they have to do and certain things that they cannot do. And then he begins to talk about the sacrifices. He begins to talk about the offerings, the animals, and kind of what they look like and, 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 and what they can't look like. They can't have spot or blemish. They can't be lame. They can't be this. They can't be that. They have to look like this. They have to look like that. And so all these things that he goes through describe all the, the, the encumbrances, all the difficulties of having a worthy sacrifice, of having a worthy offering before the Lord. We recognize our offering, our offering before the Lord, the sacrifice that makes us whole, isn't something we do, but something we receive. Christ has accomplished this for us, and having accomplished this for us, he presents us before him. So Jesus takes us uh, whole, he takes us finished, and he presents us before God. He submits himself and he takes us and he places us before God. So what does this look like? It looks like Jesus taking all of your sin. It looks like Jesus taking all of your shame. It looks like Jesus taking all of your, all of your alienation, the hostility of your mind, all of your evil deeds, taking all those things upon himself and taking off his righteousness and taking off his holiness and, and dressing you in those things. He clads you in holiness. He dresses you in righteousness. And so we look at these things and we recognize that at the end of all things that we will stand there before God presented in all of the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. But even now he has declared us innocent. 
Peter writing to a group of people kind of caught up in the diaspora. This is what he says of them in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. To these people kind of wondering, are we worthy? Have we really been changed? Have we really been altered? He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once we dwelt in darkness, that once we lived in despair, far away from the Lord, but he has brought us near to him, he has moved us into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God desires in the person of Jesus to present us holy. Man, we are set apart and distinct. We are consecrated unto the Lord. So we have this reality that when we wake up in the morning... We come into it with a borrowed righteousness, but today God is able to declare and say to you, you are holy. Not on the basis of your good deeds, but on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, you are blameless. There's no spot or blemish in you. And this, we, we have some sense of us that we're trying to carry this burden in and of ourselves, but recognize this, Christ has already carried the burden all the way across the finish line. His death His burial and resurrection is what renders a verdict of blameless. He has made us holy. He has made us blameless. And he has made us to be above reproach. Look at Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. Paul in Romans 7 is really discussing this idea of why do I do the things I don't want to do and not do the things that I do want to do? In essence, why am I kind of caught up in this past manifestations of who I used to be? Why do I continue to sin? Why do I continue to do the deeds of the flesh? And then he gets into Romans 8.1 and he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are made free. You are made whole in Christ Jesus. I can tell you that the enemy decidedly wants to see your life ruined. He wants to see you fail. So he's going to lead you into this kind of gross misinterpretation and misapplication of passages like this. On the, one, he, he, on the one hand, he wants to keep you feeling alienated. He wants to keep you feeling far off. He doesn't want you to walk in the fullness of life, having fully received the forgiveness of your sins at the hand of Jesus. But he also wants you to walk in your own sufficiency. He wants you to walk in in, in this appropriation of these things, thinking, man, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm holy. It doesn't matter what I say because I'm blameless. It doesn't matter uh, what I do because I am perfect before him. And so your, your actions, he leads you to believe, have no bearing on the reality of who you are. But what Paul does here is he calls us to this understanding that our actions are absolutely important. That the way we live out our faith is so incredibly important. And this is the whole point of what he's been saying. If you go back to verse 10, he said, I'm praying these things for you, verse 9. So verse 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
And so as we're growing in our knowledge of God, it's leading to a change in how we walk out faithfully before Him. And part of what it looks like to walk out faithfully before Him is striving to appropriate and to live out the holiness of God in the way we treat people, in the way we speak to people, in the way we think about people, in the way we think about ourselves. That as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is, that it completely, fundamentally, and unalterably changes who we are and how we live. This is what He entrusts to us that we would submit ourselves to living holy, that we would submit ourselves to living blameless, and that we would strive that every time somebody accuses us of something, that we would be able to say and have the people around us say, there's no way this is true because he or she is above reproach. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, "For, For our sake he made Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And we are called to faithfully live out that reality. What God has declared true of us in the sacrifice of Jesus should be evidentially true of us. People should be able to see this. People should be able to see that our faith has not just something that we hang our salvation on, but that our faith is actively, every day, radically altering and changing the way that we live. It's not just secured where we're headed, but it's secured and changed how we live each day. This is why he puts in here in verse 23 this this if clause. The idea that there's this, this uncertainty he introduces. So we recognize that he says, this is who you are. You're holy and blameless and above reproach. Verse 23, if indeed. Now, the assumption is that you will continue in this. The assumption is certainly even that Paul thought those there in Colossae would. Look down at at verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing, what? To see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." And so Paul did not believe that those there in Colossae were, were waffling. He didn't think that they were backsliding. He thought that they were on sure footing. But he introduces to them the necessity that their faith be walked out, that their faith be lived out, and an indication that they are owning their faith, not just intellectually, but actively and vibrantly. The Apostle John writes to a group of folks in 1 John 5.13. Now, I just say this because I want you to understand that your faith is actually something that you're able to be assured of. It's not just this idea that at the end of your life, you're going to crush your fingers and, and, and kind of eek over the finish line and just look over and think, it doesn't feel super hot in here. I guess this isn't hell, right? It's the reality that First John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance of salvation is something we are able to know. But listen, Assurance of salvation is something we're able to know, but we don't know it on the basis of our actions. And we don't even know it on the basis of outward testimony. As if people coming up to you and saying, look, I I see you over there and I see you over there and I recognize that that you are a Christian. You say, that's it, I'm at 10 people, I'm clear, right? 
And so we aren't assured of our salvation on how we feel about it. We aren't assured of our salvation on the testimony of others towards us, but those things should be true. We are assured of our salvation because of the goodness of God and the firmness of the gospel. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 gives us a picture of who we were and who we are and who we will be. And who will we be rests on the hope of the gospel. Look at what he says here. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, assuming that they would, stable and steadfast, not shifting from what? From the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, Matthew 7, Jesus tells a story that really kind of illuminates what he's talking about here when he says that it is stable. Now, these twin ideas of stable and steadfast are really kind of borrowed from building. And it's, it's this idea of, of constructing something that's not easily moved, something that will remain the ravages of time, something that will be secure. And this idea of stability, stability really talks about a foundation. Now, in Matthew 7, in 24 through 27, this is what Jesus says. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, listen, those of you who hear these words and think they sound good. Jesus doesn't say, those of you who hear these words and kind of meld your life around them loosely. Jesus doesn't even say, those who hear these words and think favorably about them. But he says, those who hear these words and does them. He will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. And they beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, but does not do them, will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What he tells us is that we need to be stable. We need to have a foundation, and that foundation isn't the trailing list of the good things we've done. That foundation cannot be the security of our baptism. That foundation cannot be how much money we give to the poor. That foundation cannot be how right people think we are. That foundation cannot be anything we do. Rest and be secure. Not on the basis of your goodness, friend, but on the basis of the security of your foundation held in the gospel. We are stable from the hope of the gospel, we are steadfast. You can be made immovable. You can be made secure by taking your hope from the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ came, that he died, and that he rose again, in him you have hope. It can be stable. It can be steadfast. And we can be able to be kept from shifting. The idea of shifting here is that someone being able to come and kind of persuade you or rather to dissuade you from following this path. But God doesn't rest the security of our salvation. He doesn't rest the intensity of our salvation. He doesn't rest our persistence in our salvation in who we are. He rests it. He entrusts it. To the finished work of Jesus. The gospel, the sure promise of God is that in which we find hope. Amen. Man, what a hopeless, 
disappointing existence, if our assurance, if the promise of our future, that it would look radically different than our past and even our best present. What a disappointing reality if what we are waiting on is our best day. How disappointing is that? And how uncertain is that? We wake up every morning recognizing we just have to push the boulder to the top of the hill again to watch it roll down the other side. To wake up tomorrow to do the same thing, to do the same thing. Christian, when you wake up in the morning, It's not to the uncertainty of how you'll be that day, but you wake up to the certainty of what God has accomplished for you in the person of Jesus. That's so incredibly important. It's so incredibly important that we recognize where we were, we really were estranged from God. We really were enemies from God. And it was to those enemies, to those aliens, to those living in hostility towards God, that he sent his son Jesus. It's to those people that he redeemed. It's to those people that he calls to be faithful. And it's to those people that in the moments of despair, in those moments when you say, I can't do this anymore, I, 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 I can't keep my anxiety at bay anymore. It's to those people when you say, I can't be kind anymore. It's to those people that he says, don't worry, rest in him. Trust in him. That all of our goodness, that all of our faithfulness, All of these things flow from the hope we take from the gospel. Let us find our hope in the gospel. Paul is such a great testimony of what it looks like to find our hope in the gospel. He tells us, he says, It is this gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven. So we recognize that in the day of Paul and today, and the gospel is still being proclaimed that military rule, that quarantine, that that disenfranchisement, that difficulty, that sickness, that, that financial difficulties, that none of these things can quell the gospel. That none of these things can hold the gospel captive. It continues to bear fruit. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, told them that the gospel was even going forth from the midst of his prison cell. How much more is the gospel going forth today as we have opportunity, even in the midst of social distancing, to live faithfully out the gospel and its mandate? And it is to this gospel that the Apostle Paul, speaking of himself, he says, I, Paul, have become a minister. Paul had a clear understanding of who he was. He had a clear understanding of his failures. Paul testifies of himself, and he says, I was one that sought to put to death the followers of Jesus. He cheered it on. He sought more death. He sought more more persecution, and all the while thought he was serving the Lord. And it's to this enemy of God that God reconciled to himself by Jesus appearing to Paul and calling him into salvation. Paul is a picture of what it looks like 
for those who are formerly estranged to be reckoned holy, to be a decree of blameless, and to live a life above reproach for the furtherance of the gospel. His hope, your hope, my hope, rests not on our own faithfulness, our own good deeds, but it rests in the sure promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us and pray that God's word would continue to do a work in our hearts. And those of us who need to be encouraged by these words today would be encouraged to be faithful. And those of us who need to surrender ourselves to the cross of Christ, we have been moving in our own goodness. We have been moving in our own sufficiency. But we recognize that the Bible communicates clearly to us We've all sinned. We've all violated God's holy law. That the wages of that sin is death. But that even while we were estranged, even while we were living distant from God, enemies of God, even in that, Christ died for sinners so that we might come to know him. Let us put our full faith and confidence in Jesus. Let us confess him as Savior and Lord. Let us ask him to forgive us and let us walk in faithfulness before him. Let me pray for you. Pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus in whom we have salvation. And God, I pray that we would put our confidence in you. I pray that we would look to you in all things, not trusting in our own goodness, but trusting in the goodness of your gospel. And Father, I pray that anyone hearing this and needing to respond in salvation, God, that they would either send an email to elders at Ridgecrest or they would click to send us a message. God, that they would reach out and have a conversation about Jesus with someone here. We submit these things to you in your son's holy name. Amen. Broken hearts, I 
says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember, not the former things, nor the things of old before. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, in rivers, in the desert. Right? This is what the Lord has done in our wickedness, in our sinfulness, in the desert of our life. He has made a river of life that flows right to it. He has made a way for salvation. He has brought us out of darkness and into his light. So sing this even when I don't see it. Even when I don't see it, you work. Even when I feel that you're working never stop never stop working never stop never stop even when i don't see it you're working even when i don't feel that you're working never stop never stop working never stop never stop working even when i don't see it you're working even when i don't feel that you're working you never stop Never stop working, you never stop working. We make a miracle work, promise keep light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are we make a miracle work, promise keep light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are.
And church family, it's been good to be with you this week. I just want to say a word of thanks to you for how incredibly faithful you have been. Man, faithful to serve the people of your neighborhood, faithful to serve the people of this community, faithful to continue even in the global impact, and, and faithful to this church in the giving of your tithes and offerings. And so thankful for you. If you're still looking for a way to give, you can give through our website, you can give directly through your bank, or you can uh, give through the, um, it, you can drop it off at the church, goodness gracious. You can still do that. Let me, let me read for you out of Second uh, Peter, uh, just one verse, and this will be our prayer for, to, for today. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Go and have a blessed week.